Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. A story of when untreated mental illness can lead to tragedy. Last weekend, a Chicago woman allegedly shot and killed her 12-year-old son. National headlines and Cook County prosecutors said the incident stemmed from a fight about a missing memory card. But her family says it was clearly an issue of mental illness. In the days before the fatal shooting of young Caden Harris Ingram, people around his mother, Fallon Harris, said they noticed a change in her behavior, and they even tried to intervene. But her husband said, quote, it was too late. This heart-wrenching story raises several questions, including what family, friends, and even colleagues can do to help a person who's struggling with mental illness. Alexa James is someone with answers. She is executive director of the Chicago chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI. And Alexa is just as heartbroken as we all are for everyone involved. I can't imagine the grief that the family and the mother is experiencing, how this impacts community when we hear these stories. And I think it's very brave and courageous for the family to step in and say, we need to have a conversation about unnoticed mental health signs and symptoms, noticed mental health signs and symptoms, and what we all need to be doing to be healers for people so they don't feel the desperation that that mom felt. And I want to be clear, we won't litigate the details of this particular case, but there are many issues at play here that affect a lot of people. For instance, The family of the Chicago woman says that she was exhibiting erratic behavior in the days and weeks beforehand. Uh, They said that they rallied around her. Her mom even flew in from Arizona. Uh, They encouraged the woman to seek counseling. What's your suggestion, Alexa, for the best approach to connecting a loved one with help? Yeah, I mean, we see this all the time, unfortunately. I mean, certainly not always with such a tragic outcome, but we certainly see all the time family members feeling this panic, noticing and leaning into behaviors that they are experiencing with a loved one. We see it in the workplace, too. And what we've noticed is that there's a very specific way to have a conversation about encouraging somebody to help seek. And oftentimes, we don't have that talent. We don't have that skill set. The availability around mental health literacy is quite low. Um, We see this all the time on our helpline, Sasha, for example. We have parents call all the time that say, I've been trying to get my loved one into treatment for years. And once our clinicians are able to coach the parents or the individual themselves, Mm -hmm. we see an immediate um, engagement with treatment. And I think that that is because of the way in which we have these conversations, which are very different, but also incredibly important. So what are the biggest mistakes that you see that, that folks make when they try to broach the issue? You know, I want to frame that it's certainly not a mistake, right? Leading with love is never a mistake. I think what happens is we treat people as though they have no ownership over their own decision making. You know, Sasha, we have to remember that we are living in a space right now where people feel no power anyways. Um, And we're talking about people who have maybe never felt ownership or power over their own lives for a long time. So it's really about seeing and hearing people, about validating them not being super directive, but Mm -hmm. being open without judgment and and really digging into our own empathy. Practicing those conversations are really important. It's what we do in workplace. It's what we do with the police department when we're encouraging them to support people in crisis. And it's what we do with our family education program as well. 
You talked about the workplace. The, the woman worked for the Chicago Department of Transportation, uh, and there was reportedly a meeting between her and three CDOT foremen to discuss counseling services, which the agency provides for their workers. So this brings me to the employer, Alexa. What role do you think the employer should play in such circumstances? I think the employer is a fundamental vehicle for educating their workforce around signs and symptoms and insight. You know, what happens when we become symptomatic often, particularly if we are experiencing psychosis, so delusional thinking, hallucinations, et cetera, it's very difficult for us to have insight into our own behavior. For us, that's our norm. And so the workplace, who is with people sometimes more than their own family, really have the opportunity to notice the shift in behavior and to have conversations. Sometimes, however, at the point of intervention, meaning when the symptoms are already demonstrating themselves, it may be a little bit too late. We have to start at the beginning. How are we recruiting people? How are we onboarding folks to tell them what resources there are, including their families in those conversations so families know what the workforce can provide and training families, partners, roommates, et cetera, how to have conversations of validation, of empathy, of expressing our own vulnerability when we're trying to encourage people to seek treatment. We think that at this point, particularly after COVID, the workplace has such a huge responsibility, actually, Mm -hmm. to step into a role of psychological safety and also, on the other side of it, have really strong resources that can come in and support individuals immediately when the need arises. That can be hard, though, because I know that coworkers sometimes may feel like it's not their place to step in on something right. so personal. That's exactly right. And it's the same with family members. We hear this all the time, like, oh, I don't know if I should really lean into this. It's not my place. Oh, you know, I, this is making me uncomfortable. And that's the truth. It's uncomfortable because we don't feel like we're super skilled at it. You know, we don't really know how to always provide support and comfort. Um, But the truth is, it's really important that we learn how. (laughs) And it's okay also to just call our helpline, for example, and say, this is what I'm seeing with somebody that I care about. Um, Can you give me some coaching strategies? That's when we've also seen a really high rate of people beginning to engage with us. Or we'll say, you know what, do you think they'd be willing to to get on the call with us? Those, you know, those conversations with the when the other person is present, too, can be incredibly helpful. Uh, Alexa, does the calculation change when there are firearms in the home? How does that affect what a person should or shouldn't do when they're faced with a family member who may need mental health support? Yeah, I mean, it's God, that's a sticky situation. We know that when there are firearms present, we see an increased risk for obviously homicide and suicide, particularly when it accompanies, you know, challenging behaviors. Um, What we've done before is encourage family members to take custody of the firearm to alert officials of their active FOID card, for example. Mm -hmm. That's been something that we've been able to do successfully. We've also helped people have that conversation around, like, what does it look like to risk assess um, a family situation? What's at stake when a person just doesn't get help in time? Well, I think that we're pointing to a failure of a system that continues to respond to crisis. The failure is that this person who has access, supposedly, that somebody who has the human right to mental health treatment and to a good, high-functioning life doesn't get it because we just aren't doing it right. That, to me, is the biggest failure. You know, people who are living with a mental health condition are not more likely to be violent. I want to make sure that that is really well understood. In fact, they're far more likely to be a victim of a violent crime. But we also know that high levels of stress, and when we aren't able to mitigate that stress, 
you know, my daughter has a spiked a fever last night. And in the COVID world, mm-hmm. you know, typically as a mom, I could handle it. It felt like my house was burning down. You know, the ability for us to like handle stress at this moment is very high. You know, when we're talking about what's at stake, we're talking about people's functioning in their lives and their ability to function in a way that betters themselves, keeps them employed and allows them to carry on and, and potentially help other people. You know, in Miss Harris's case, something that really sticks out to me, Alexa, is how her family, her husband, her mom, you know, they said that despite their concerns, they never thought she would hurt her son. And I think a lot of people would feel similarly. What do you think it is that we fail to understand about mental illness when we just assume that people could never do such an unthinkable thing? You know, it's a very basic thing to say, Sasha, but I will say when we feel powerless, we behave in ways that are unlike ourselves. It's why we hurt ourselves. It's why we can hurt other people. It's why we cheat. It's why we lie. Yeah. That's fundamental here. You know, I had a conversation with a dad a few weeks ago whose young son was really unwell for a long time. And we were practicing a conversation, a way that he could shift a conversation with him. And he said to me, I've been doing it all wrong this whole time. I said, you haven't been doing it all wrong. You've been doing it the best you can with love. But I wonder if you try a different method, how it will work. You know, fast forward, he's engaged in treatment. He's engaged in our team. It's been a really successful outcome. So there's a lot of support that we also have to give the family. They they are so important in the treatment. They are the people that carry this person on once they start to feel better. And so that's why NAMI exists, frankly. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of of the mental health professionals, too. Um, You know, this woman was seeing a therapist. But overall, this work, it, it comes with great responsibility. For the folks on the mental health professional side. Yeah, it does. And we're feeling a lot of burnout. (laughs) Um, I I always say, you know, we do a lot of work with the police. And I always say our mental health professionals should be held to the same amount of accountability as our law enforcement. I really feel that way. Um, I I certainly think we do a hard job, but there needs to be standardization. And I'm certainly not talking about the clinician that met with this woman because we unfortunately see this all the time, that we miss things or things weren't presented to us. You know, behavioral health. Um, assessments are based on somebody else's self-reporting. You know, this isn't like we can do an MRI and understand exactly what's going on. So, yeah, so mental health clinicians need resources. We need to have standardized practices and quality assurances. And we also have to give some grace to understanding that people are sharing with us how they're feeling and they are controlling that narrative. During the pandemic, NAMI Chicago has seen a much higher demand for their mental health services. Uh, You report that since March 2020, calls to your helpline increased more than 200 percent, and the average length of the calls went from about 12 minutes to 20 minutes. Give us a bit more insight, Alexa, into what you're seeing specifically. Is it more calls about anxiety? Is it depression? Are they violent It's all over the board. You know, what we've seen, which is really interesting, is 50% of our calls are really requiring just support. People just want to be seen and heard. They just want to talk to somebody immediately, and that's what the helpline provides. And you you mentioned the extension. We're on the calls with people for so much longer, and we're devoting more more call time to the general population. We're getting calls from people who are acute, who are highly stressed, who are for the first time experiencing depression and anxiety. We're getting a lot of calls from people who are feeling incredibly hopeless and low. Some folks who want to change their clinical practice, meaning they want to find a new therapist, which is great. Um, And so we coach them through that process. But also, you know, NAMI Chicago understands that mental health is not just about clinical intervention. It's about stable housing and food and finding purpose and employment, et cetera. So a lot of our calls assess 
the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. And then we connect them to those resources at all as well. Housing resources right now are in, an incredible challenge, um, as you know, in the city of Chicago and right. in our nation, frankly. And so getting people to a place where they have stable housing through families and friends and often through even leaving Chicago has been something that we've also been seeing a lot of. This Saturday, uh, you're hosting your annual NAMI Walks, and that's a 5K walk to destigmatize mental illness. What's going on there? This is my 11th year walking. Um, oh, God, this is such a special day. And I'm, I feel so hopeful about people who show up for us on this day because it's such a commitment to wellness. It is saying, I am here. I may be here celebrating my own recovery and my joy. I may be here grieving somebody who lost their battle with mental illness, but we are showing up together as a unifying front to say that this is an important thing that we need to fundraise for and really elevate, I think, NAMI Chicago's narrative, which is through the voices of those experiencing the mental health system Mm -hmm. um, so that we can continue to do this work and this outreach. And it's it's a stigma reducer, right? When you show up and say, this is me, this is my loved one, I am not ashamed. In fact, mental illness is, is not a deficit. It can be a huge opportunity to grow our emotional health. We're super excited about Saturday. And frankly, I'm personally looking forward to finding a little hope and celebration after such a difficult week. Where can folks go to learn more or to sign up? NamiChicago.org, our events page. We are fundraising still for a few more months. It's not too late to sign up. Sign up is free. And if you're more comfortable in the um, COVID space, um, we are also having a virtual walk that you can certainly join. Please, please do join us. And if you want to call NAMI um, directly for our helpline services or for any more information about the walk, you can call 833-NAMI-SHY. And uh, I want to, before I let you go, Alexa, I kind of want to go back to what we were talking about earlier, the, those telltale signs. What what behavior or changes should folks watch for? Things that we just can't brush off or we can't minimize. Like, you know what? They're just stressed. They're distracted. It's mm-hmm. It's a pandemic. And even though it's a pandemic, that doesn't mean that we're discounting it because it's a universal experience, right? Yeah, I would say that changes in sleep are really significant. So people either not being able to sleep or sleeping and not feeling rested. I would say high rates of agitation, hopelessness, meaning they're talking about hopelessness, or maybe they're behaving in a way that feels unlike them. There's paranoia. They're grandiose. Um, maybe they're not eating or sleeping. Maybe they have stopped engaging in behaviors that typically really made them feel good, like socializing, shopping, exercising, et cetera, reading, um, easily distracted, a lot of those things. We have a lot of information on our website to Sasha, as well as modeling conversations about how to have a conversation with somebody we love. So all those resources are there. And again, my clinical team, who is incredible, are always happy to coach you through that as well. Well, that is Alexa James with NAMI Chicago. Now, if you or someone you know is struggling you can use NAMI Chicago's free and confidential helpline. The number is 833-NAMI-SHY or 833-626-4244. You can also visit namichicago.org. Alexa, thank you so much for making the time for us today. Thank you so much, Sasha. I appreciate it. And once again, NAMI Chicago's helpline number is 833-NAMI-SHY or 833-626-4244. 4244. Or you can visit their website at namichicago.org. Well, that's it for today's reset. For more of our interviews, subscribe to this podcast and please give us a rating. It helps other listeners find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. Take the best of care and we'll meet again tomorrow.
Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.